fall into the theology bit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh and not like a bottomless pit where you die of dehydration. Hey, um, thanks a lot for sticking with us and for uh, listening to these podcasts and, you know, being so supportive of everything. Um, we're going to be continuing on today uh, with our discussion on salvation and kind of going through the history of salvation and um, not only what it means to be saved, but in the broadest sense of how the application of Christ's atonement works. How is it applied to us? And historically, how have people thought about it? Now, this is, I think, the sixth installment in this series. And, you know, it may seem like we're not making a lot of progress in understanding the application of the atonement. And the reason why is because when we talked about the ransom to Satan view and the recapitulation view of the atonement, they, while they had elements that were correct in them, they also were incomplete. Um, together we see more elements and that's why they never truly went away. Um, you still have this understanding of a, a ransom, so to speak, a, a payment that has to be made. Um, the difference being that the payment is to God and not to uh, Satan. And the recapitulation view that Christ had to be the second Adam. And we kind of mix those together. Now, last time we talked about um, Augustine and Pelagius and what their views were on original sin. And we touched on free will a little bit. And we're going to spend some more time on free will and on sin uh, in, in this podcast. And hopefully... That will allow us to then springboard into the next few um, understandings of the atonement, Uh, the satisfaction view of the atonement and uh, moving into maybe the vicarious substitutionary view or the uh, governmental view. Now, we'll see where, you know, it'll it goes from there. But right now we want to start out our talk on free will. All right, so I decided to do these podcasts to not only help the Christian faith and to help the body of Christ to understand theology better, understand what we mean as Christians um, when we say certain things and we talk about certain things. Um, Some of the heresies that I've gone over, I've seen recently uh, popping up on on, Facebook and social media and those sort of things. And I'm yawning a lot here. And, you know, it always strikes me as odd that not only do you have these big name pastors of mega churches and uh, what have you saying things that are heresy, flat out heretical statements. Now, I'm not saying that they're heretical because they disagree with me. I'm not the arbiter of what it is, but heretical in the historic sense. And what they are saying is not representative of Christianity in those doctrines. Now, I don't believe that this is sending them to hell. I believe that they are just in great error because of it. But I made this decision to do these podcasts because I have a background in 
radio. I have a background in teaching theology and I have a background in teaching theology on the radio and, you know, doing podcasts in the past. I figured, you know, why not? Let's, let's kind of go with this and let's turn this into a ministry and let's do these things. Why did I start doing this? Was it free will? Was it that I just said on my own one day with no outside influences, I'm just going to do this? Or did I start doing these podcasts because it was inevitable? All of my years of study, all of my years of teaching, all of the different experiences that I've had have led me to do the podcast that you're listening to. It's inevitable. I mean, you're listening to podcast number six of this series. Is that because it's necessary? Could I have stopped at five? Did I have to do six? Do I have the will to stop? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Is this even possible? Is free will even possible? Because when we say free will, and when people talk about free will, what exactly are they talking about? Are they talking about, you know, a, a libertarian free will? What a libertarian free will is, is that the person's actions are completely uncaused by any coercion whatsoever. There's nothing that is is coming in. Um, there's nothing that's affecting them. I sat here and no forces internal or external came to persuade me in any way to do these podcasts. This is very difficult to understand, to understand logically, because if there were no influences in anything that I did, I would be completely static. I wouldn't be able to make any decisions. I couldn't have any desires because my desire would sway me. Having this kind of free will, when we talk about free will, I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's ever possible. I don't think that it's possible even before the fall of man to have this kind of free will. I think as human beings, we are products of our environments and we are products of the effects of our environment and products of the effects that we have on our environment. I think that the reason why Adam and Eve were quote unquote perfect in the garden is because their only influence was God who is good, who is being itself. And I think that they would remain that state because of that influence. Now having that influence is that, Is that a corruption of free will, if we claim that we even have it? You would have to say yes, because anything that comes in that knocks you off the balance of good, excuse me, I have to cut all this stuff out, of good or evil, would then show that you don't have libertarian free will. Every 
action that's taking place has a cause. But if that's true, then are we actually responsible for any of our actions? I mean, if somebody is a sinner and they're going around sinning and they're doing bad things and it's because they were treated poorly or they had a poor upbringing or the neighborhood that they lived in was bad or there were economic problems, um, that they were a minority that was put down, that the country that they lived in was not treating them fairly, was not treating them equally, and therefore they lashed out. Whose fault is that behavior? Is it the society's fault? Is it the parent's fault? Or is it the person's fault? Are they the ones that should be held responsible for their actions? Somebody goes out and kills somebody else, and they say, well, you know what? Uh, In the culture that they came from, they don't see that as murder. That was actually something that is done in their culture that they don't consider wrong. So you can't put them in jail for doing that because they didn't know any better. We can take it all the way back to God if we wanted to, this argument. This person committed this sin because of the influence of their culture, which was caused by the culture perpetuating, which was caused by the people within the culture, generation after generation after generation, all the way back to Adam. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit and God said to Adam, I told you not to do this. Why have you done this? And Adam said, you know, doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, or he doesn't take responsibility. Um, he says, the woman you gave me, gave me that fruit and, and I ate it. He's blaming God. He's saying that if the circumstances were different, Lord, you know that I wouldn't have done that because I never did. But you introduced this third party here, this woman who gave me this, uh, you know, gave me this, this, this fruit to eat, this apple or whatever you want to call it. And so therefore it's your fault, God, all this is your fault. This is all your fault. And it's not my fault at all. God, Eve, what's going on here? Eve's like, well, the snake, the snake deceived me. It's not my fault at all. You know, I was cool with Adam. I was, we were chilling here. We were hanging out. Uh, and this snake shut, if it wasn't for the snake, well then, you know, I wouldn't have sinned. So, you know, God then goes to the snake. And of course, as they say, the lake did, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on, but you know, I should, I should put a, a rim shot in there for that. That was funny. Come on now. Okay. But anyways, people tend to get like that. So, you know, When we talk about free will, a lot of times people say, okay, well, if we don't have free will, then, and we don't have this libertarian free will, well, then we must have a fatalistic free will. We are destined to behave this way because of our actions, okay? 
Fatalism is defined as belief that a person's life and choices are totally and unalterably the result of an endless series of cause and effect. And doesn't that sound like what's going on? So if we have this endless series of cause and effects that are happening, then it it doesn't matter. Now, if you believe in original sin, you would say it starts with Adam. If you don't believe in original sin, you would say, well, then it starts with the person. So, you know, when you first become conscious, whenever that is, when you first have that realization that, you know, you're, you're a conscious being and you make that first choice, that that then sets the dominoes going on whether you're going to do good or evil. Let's, let's say that you did something bad and you keep reinforcing that bad behavior. The reason why you murdered somebody is because as a child, you made a decision to do something that was wrong. And it just, it's like the butterfly effect, that small little thing that happened. That is what is causing all these problems. Now, in between the fatalism view and the libertarian view is a view called compatibilism. And this is a belief that a person's actions are free and they're also determined by their own character and desires. So free, not in the sense of libertarian freedom that we can actually go against our desires but they are free within the the framework that we live in. Okay. Um, in some countries, America being one, we have a certain amount of freedom within the law. We don't have a freedom outside of the law. We're free to do anything we want as long as it's in the law. If it goes outside the law, our freedom gets taken away. We get put in jail. So we're free... But yet, we're contained at the same time. We're free and we're not free. We don't seem to have a problem with this in society. We don't seem to have a problem with the fact that we say that we're free, but we don't mean libertarian type of free will, that we can just do anything that we want, that we actually have to live in, in, inside a, a structure of rules, a set of rules. But for some reason, when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to God... We want to push back against that. Within God's sovereignty, we're free. But what kind of influence does he have on us? If he has the influence on us that we, there, there is original sin and we are horrible, you know, retrobate worms, as you know, some theologians have called us, and we can't do anything on our own. And God has to come in and change us. And then once he does, then we have this ability and this desire to start trying to do the right things. Why does he do that for everybody? Why is it only some, but not others? I'm not here to answer that today. Um, I hate to disappoint you 15 minutes into the podcast, but I'm, I'm not here. And the reason why is because this question was posed to Paul in the book of Romans. And I wish Paul would have given a better explanation than what he did. But all he said is, who are you? Who are you to say to the potter? Why have you made me in this way? The potter makes a lump of clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. 
not saying that God makes people for dishonor, just saying that, nor does he make people for honor. I'm just saying that you have no right to say in an accusatory way, in this, this harsh way to the creator, why have you created me like this? And blaming him for your choices. If you know that what you're doing is wrong and you do it anyway, that's called sin. Sin is literally missing the mark. Now, there are some people that don't believe in the concept of sin, um, both people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God, as, as odd as that is to say that there are people who believe in God but don't believe in sin, people who claim to be Christians also. I shouldn't say claim to be Christians. I would say that they are Christians, but they are imbalanced in their theology and believe that we don't sin anymore, that it's impossible for us to sin anymore when everything, not only in our lives, but in Scripture, says completely different. And the problem is, is that if you are not a let's say even a deist at at the basic bare minimum, but at least a theist, then you would have a naturalistic philosophy. Um, But because of that, you would necessarily default to fatalism. Somebody who is an atheist and who is completely honest with their worldview makes the argument that there is nothing that they can do that would really make any difference because everything is fatalistically determined from when the universe began, everything went into motion and they would say, I can't be a Christian because I'm an atheist. I can't choose any differently because I am an atheist. Everything's it's fatalistically determined. I'm doing things, my desire is doing things because all these other dominoes have been set into place and they're falling and there's no way that I can get outside of that. I'm totally, totally done. Um, Compatibilism, on the other hand, holds to the idea that it's like you're on a boat heading to somewhere, I guess Europe, wherever, And you are free to move about that boat as much as you possibly want to do whatever you want. But at the same time, no matter what you do, you're in that boat. You are going to Europe. Okay. It's determined that you're going to Europe, but you have freedom within that that confine. There should be another... Another example for you. That's compatibilism. Now, Augustine and the reformers were of the compatibilism understanding, the compatibilism faith, okay, that they would say that because of God's grace, we then have the ability to um, do good, to actually do good things, spiritually good things, okay? As well as, you know, maybe some physical also. But 
the libertarian free will, the idea that we are born pure and we are born good and there are no determining factors in us at all and we have the ability to choose good and evil, that is in a different line, in a different area. Now, this type of libertarian free will, people would ascribe to Pelagius, Arminius, Wesley, the Wesleyans, um, you know, the Arminians, the, that branch of it. I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's quite fair um, because none of them come out and say, apart from God, we are, you know, we are good. Um, Aristotle would give an example of the, this kind of understanding of, of you know, free will with hitting a rock with a stick. Who is responsible for where that rock goes if that rock hits somebody else? Is the rock responsible for hitting that person and injuring them? Is the stick responsible for hitting the rock that hits that person? Is the arm that the stick is connected to that hit the rock that hit the person, is that who's responsible? Well, maybe to a degree that the arm is responsible because it's connected to the person and um, it's affiliation with the person. The person's then controlling the arm. But you hear a lot of modern day, extremely rational uh, arguments made in this way that this projectile hit this person and killed them because of what propelled the projectile in the first place. And it's that which is the problem. That inanimate thing is the problem. Rather than the person who is controlling the device that is accelerating that projectile that struck that person. And so what we need to do is we need to get rid of all sticks. And if we get rid of all sticks, then no stones will ever hit anybody. Um, people make these arguments and people actually entertain these arguments as though they make sense. But then they would say, well, even though the person did this, there were probably other outside forces on them. So people who would say that you have free will are actually fatalists going in that direction. Pelagius, as we talked about in the last pit, he wasn't saying that, you know, we are, you know, outside of the ability to do anything, that God's grace is what comes in. Remember, he had his threefold um, understanding. He had the, um, uh, the power was the first one. That's what we got from God, the power to be able to do this, the will and then the response. So our responsibility, of course, was in our response, and it was also in our will to be able to exercise that, and God gave us that power. So he was just saying that we needed that for every single moment of every single day. We constantly do need that. Now, where this is coming in with the understanding of original sin is that because of this, 
God balances the scales, okay? Like, let's say there's a scale, you're 50-50, you're going to do good or you're going to do evil. Pelagius would say that through this power that God's given us, we have the ability to choose good or evil. And this would be the same argument that the Wesleyans are making and the same argument that the Arminians are making. But they would call it prevenient grace, that you know God is preventing our sin nature from causing us to do wrong so that we can choose, where Pelagius was saying that we don't have an original sin nature. Okay, we are um, neutral in a sense, but because of the bad influence of Adam, that that's where we, you know, have these, uh, have these issues. So if we have this, this free will, this 50, 50 thing going on, um, as far as you know, Pelagius goes and everything, then there is a responsibility that we have to accept Christ or to reject Christ and nothing outside of us can come in. So, it's almost, I don't want to say this, it's, it's, it's almost that you don't need to tell anyone about Christ or you don't need to study or you don't need to do missions work or do any of this stuff because no matter what you do, you cannot tip the scales one way or another in favor of God or against God in somebody because God puts it perfectly neutral. And if he's going to put it perfectly neutral, he's doing that so that people won't be swayed one way or the other from an external force, from a force that's beyond their control. And unless the people are controlling you who's trying to give them the gospel, it's, it's not going to work. They would have to remain 50-50. But even though the Bible never, you know, implicitly says these, well, explicitly says, you know, that God comes in and balances the scales so that, you know, we have this prevenient grace or we have this power that's given to us by God to be able to, to choose. Um, what happens is If you don't, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to sum this up as best I can to really get this idea out there that while you're trying to say that we have a free will in the sense of freedom to choose without any influence, you actually have no free will. You don't have the ability to choose. You can't. You would be static. You'd be stagnant the whole time. You would never, ever do what was right or what was wrong. You would never make a decision. You would become immobile. It would be impossible. Um, your choices would then become completely arbitrary. They would be based on nothing. They would just random. Well, whatever it is, I just I fell one direction one day, based on nothing. I, it just it just happened, and and I went that direction. I mean, that's, that's the best you could say. But that's not freedom. That's not freedom to choose. That's not freedom to weigh options. That's not freedom to be allowed to be swayed one way or the other. The Bible talks about um, people's choices are affected by other people's choices. In Deuteronomy 20, 
verse 5, it says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations for those who hate me, or of those who hate me. So here you have a couple things going on, okay? The people that hate God, you know, God is visiting the iniquity on them and their children, third, fourth generations. If they keep hating God, you know, it's, it's this, it's this reaction. It's this, this thing that somebody else's choices, your parents' choices, whatever it is, are causing this problem. Now, Jesus says in the book of Mark that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone was hung around his neck and he had been cast into the sea. Notice that. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, implying that it's possible for somebody to influence somebody else to stumble and to sin. That they didn't come and say things to them or encourage them a certain way that was wrong or do anything like that. And then God came in and balanced those scales. And he balanced those scales and said, okay, see, it doesn't matter. Nothing that you do, nothing that anybody brings up to you, do you have to ever worry about because I'm completely balancing the scales. So that's where this idea of libertarian free will, we have this problem. Now, that doesn't get compatibilism off the hook, okay, where we're both free and determined, because that sounds contradictory. That sounds very problematic. It's difficult to see how a person's acts can be both of those. What, you know, if I, if all I do is evil and all I do is sin, I'm free to do whatever I want, but everything that I do is going to be evil. How is that freedom if I don't have the power of contrary choice? And why would God still find fault in mankind if he is the first cause that placed him in the circumstances that has determined his choices? A lot of people have said, take the tree out of the garden and we cease to have this problem. So the compatibilists, they don't get off the hook that easy with this. The fatalists most definitely don't, okay? I mean, we have correction officers. We have correction facilities. We have jails. We have rehabilitations because it is possible for people to actually change their desires. So there is, there, in a sense, there isn't a fatalism. But we go with our greatest desire. And so we, in a way, are slaves to our desire. So if everybody has equal chance to choose Christ, then why isn't everybody a Christian? Or at least the majority Christians. If everybody has this equal opportunity. How is it that I had a better opportunity being raised in a Christian family, being taken to church, studying theology. Did I have more of a chance of being a Christian than 
somebody who lives on the other side of the world, brought up in a Muslim house, raised under Islam. Why aren't they Christians? Why is it that somebody that was born maybe in India follows the Hindu faith and isn't a Christian? Why don't you see more speckling of Christianity all through the world rather than concentrated in certain areas if everybody has this same choice? Because they don't. I mean, I understand what they're saying. It's only fair if we take responsibility for our actions. It's only fair if we have our chance to choose. It's only fair that, you know, that we shouldn't have this dumped on us. Okay, we should have the ability. And I can sympathize with that. I really can. Um, I think that it's a blessing that we don't, and I'll get into that later. But I want to say that if fairness is your argument to why the, the scales need to be balanced, then why isn't it fair across the board? Why isn't it fair that everybody has the same influence externally as well as the same influence internally? It's extremely problematic. In a nutshell, and I'm not, I, I'll just say this now, I won't, I won't save it for later here, but I think in a nutshell that it's a blessing that we are all tied to Adam in this because then it allows us as a species, as one unit for Christ to die for everyone. So just to kind of summarize this really, really quick, you know, with free will, you know, is there such a thing? Uh, Yes and no. You know, as as we've looked at, um, you know, man's will is free in the sense that he's free to do what he's able to do. In other words, man's free will is limited by his ability. Okay. Man is limited by his desire. If you're, if you're going through the McDonald's and, um, you order food and you get, you know, you get your change back and you go to drive away and you see, they gave you back too much change. Let's say you gave them five bucks, you know, for a cheeseburger or whatever. And they gave you 50 bucks back and you, you leave. What do you do? Do you take the money back? What's your greatest desire? Let's say that you just lost your job. And yeah, that was your last five bucks. Would you look at that differently? This is a blessing from God. God has blessed me with this money. You could rationalize it in that way. Or, you know, you have a good job. You say, no, 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 I got to take it back. You got to do that. You're going with your greatest desire. And that's being affected by your, your, your ability, your, your influence, your stage in life, in, in, what's going on. So man would have the ability, the natural ability to make choices, but lacks the ability to make godly choices. People say, can you be good without God? Absolutely. You know, can you be godly without God? No, it's impossible. Book of Romans tells us that it's impossible. Nobody believes that. Nobody says, yes, I can search for God. I can understand God. I can do the things of God without God. I can make godly choices through my natural ability. Say, no, no, we can't. We can't 
make a move towards God without God, since we are in bondage because of this sinful nature. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Now, I keep saying sinful nature, and I know we covered it a little bit in the last episode, but I want to go over it um, a little bit more. And I want to talk about uh, yeah, original sin. I want to talk about the condition of mankind. I want to talk about you know when when these different views come about on what 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 we mean by sin, what we mean by missing the mark, what we we mean by how it is applied to us, what is going on, and the reason why we have to talk about this is because. When we get into the order of salvation through the satisfaction view of the atonement and through the recapitulation view of the atonement, the governmental view, it's trying to solve a problem that we see that's coming about because of this whole free will understanding and and what's happening. Things that they weren't thinking about before when they were articulating the ransom to Satan view and the recapitulation view, they're addressing now. And... With this, we have to kind of get this this understanding so that we can look at it and say, okay, that's why this needs to be fixed. That's why these things go in this way. So I'm going to kind of break this up into four different terms, okay, when we talk about sin. And I'm just going to kind of define them uh, so we get an understanding of what we mean you know, between original sin, okay? And I've, I've used original sin a lot. I've used that word a lot. And I want to define that as a broad term, okay? Original sin I'm using very broadly. That refers to the effects that the first sin had on humanity, okay? That's what I mean by original sin, the origin of sin, okay? Where it comes from. So this would be Adamic, in a sense, from Adam. Now there's another type that's imputed sin. Okay. And this specifically refers to the guilt or the condemnation that we've, we've received, um, of the first sin, which was imputed to humanity. All right. This is like the original guilt. Okay. Um, the third one is inherited sin. And this specifically refers to the transferal of the sinful nature also called original corruption, original pollution, uh, or just sinful nature, okay? And then we have personal sin, and these are sins that are committed by individuals, okay? So original, imputed, inherited, and personal, okay? So I think that we went over what original sin broadly and, and what, we, what we mean by that, Okay? And all of these other ones, you would look at it and depending on who you were talking to, would accept or reject 
one of the other ones in this in this sense. And there's good reason for it. I don't want to say that you know it's it's bad. Pelagius is arguing against the concept of original sin as a whole because this is given to us from another. And he would make this defense, and it's it's a defense that you can understand. It's, it's a defense that we can grab a hold of, and we have to kind of suspend our own uh, prejudices in this area and kind of grab a hold of this. And he's going to the Bible for this also. It's not like he just makes this stuff up because, you know, well... I mean, he, we, we did go through some of the, the, the logical and philosophical reasons of, you know, God does not create sinful things. He doesn't create evil, so he wouldn't create an evil spirit and put him in. You know, when we talked about, you know, that part of the constitution of man, that, you know, the physical is, is bad, the spiritual is good, God makes good, and, you know, and that would be the, um, the, the creationist view of the soul rather than the traducian view where the parents create the body and the soul. But in the book of Jeremiah... It says um, this this uh, proverb here. In those days, they will not say again. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the chil- children's teeth are set on the edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on the edge. Now, what that translates to modernly is because grapes are very sweet, have sugar and you know, if you eat it, you're not brushing your teeth, those, those sort of things. It's going to rot your teeth. So he would say, look, you know, where are the people who are going to say, my father spent his whole life eating sour grapes and I never did. Okay. And he, his teeth are fine and my teeth have rotted out. How can you say my teeth have rotted out because of what he has eaten? That is ridiculous. Okay. In Ezekiel 18, verses 19 and 20, it says, Yet you say, Why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Okay, so Pelagius is saying, look, scripture is backing me up here on this. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, all right? But again, you know, the problems that we have with the balancing of the scale and, you know, um, all all this stuff, um, it denies the true concept of freedom that that Pelagius is trying to get at. Okay. But it's also asking the question in a way that why does God then condemn and expect people to do things that they can't do? Okay. I mean... If the Bible is saying that man has free will to choose good or evil with no inherent disposition to the other, then why is it that people keep choosing wrong? If we have this ability when we're walking with God in the garden to choose good or evil, we should have just kept choosing good. We initially had that I think as our, in our being, as human beings, we have that potential. But because of this external sin, we no longer 
have that ability, whether we want to admit it or not. We just we just don't. And I think that that's proven through the history of the world and the way people behave, even within our own lives. Why do we do evil instead of good? You know, Paul writes, why the things that I want to do, uh, those are the things I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, guess what? Those are the things that I do. So the Bible also goes on to say that in Genesis, Genesis 2, right at the beginning, from the free, tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you will surely die. Now, they did eat it, and they, you're thinking, well, they didn't die. Well, death you know, means separation as much as physical death is. Separation, separating the body from the soul, separating you from God. It's, it's not, it doesn't mean cessation of being. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So the Bible is looking at it as though we are sinners because of this. Psalm 51, look, I was prone to do wrong from my birth. I was a sinner at the moment my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17, the human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? We tend to want responsibility on ourselves, but we don't have the ability to make any alternate choices. John 3, 3 says, Jesus answered him and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. All right. For as though, for Romans five nineteen says, uh, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. And I think that's the blessing right there, that because we're all tied to Adam, we can also all be tied to the second Adam, that Christ's death was sufficient for the entire world, but efficient for only those who the Father is called. So when we get this understanding of Scripture telling us that we are both capable and incapable. I think that within the way we were originally created, we had that capability, but once sin came in, it became an impossibility. And we are not made like Adam. Uh, This is part of the reason why I hold to a Traducian point of view. Um, I I have difficulty... Uh, because I, I think that if I held to a creationist view of God creating each soul, putting it in somebody, I would start sliding into a Gnostic understanding of everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad. I want to get rid of this physical. I want to be spiritual. I want to spend eternity in heaven when that's not what's going to happen. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth. We're going to get our bodies back. We are going to live in a physical uh, way. We're going to live in a physical earth and physical bodies. We're going to you know, relate to one another physically. Um, I don't see how it makes things better to push back against this understanding of original sin and this concept of we have to be free to make this choice. Ultimately, we are going to get, when we're resurrected, our glorified bodies. 
do people believe that we're going to be able to sin after that? I don't know anybody that's ever made that argument that says, no, whenever God has taken sin and death and cast it into the fire, cast it into the lake of fire, done away with it completely, that it will be able to come back out. It's as though it's, it, it, it's a done deal. It's gone. It's over with there. And you, so you're going to be left with the impossibility of sinning. Does that still negate choice? Does it negate love? I don't think so. I don't think that it does. I think that removing the desire that we want to be removed of doing wrong in the sight of God, that that will be fulfilled and it has been fulfilled in Christ. You know, is it still possible for us to stumble in the future? I want to say no theologically, but I don't know for sure. It just doesn't make sense for us in our glorified state in the new heaven and the new earth where, you know, our sinful nature is not there. Our corruption is not there. Our wicked desire is not there. And the imputation of the sinful nature is on us that we're going to want that desire back just for the argument's sake of love, as though love is impossible outside of that. Within the Trinity, there is love, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, Father and Son to the Holy Spirit. They all love each other, and there's no sin in them. There's no wickedness in them. There's no evil in them in their being, but yet the concept of love still remains. They loved us before the fall of man. They loved us after. They loved us so much that the second person of the Trinity wrapped himself in human flesh and died on our behalf to reconcile us back, to take away that thing that separates us. That's all free will. That's all love. So how is it that we can say that without a sinful nature, then we don't have the ability to love? Without free will, we don't have the ability to choose. And that therefore, we're, we're like robots. We're like Christian robots for God. I have a hard time reconciling all of that. It's easier for me to say that there was a problem in the garden because of Adam and Eve, because of their sin. And that God said he would make it right in the garden. And that God made it right on the cross with Christ. That our sinfulness was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was then imputed to us. And that we hold that. We are at the same time justified and we are sinners. Simulate ustat peccator. Scripture also says in John 6 that no one can come to the Father and uh, who... No one can come to me, this is Christ speaking, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
which means that we don't have the ability. John 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is slave, is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does not remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you're free indeed. So in one way, we can say that we are completely righteous and we are completely free of sin, even though we are sinning, because positionally that's where we are. But at the same time, we can't say that we don't sin anymore because we do. We can't say that we're not sinners because we are. We are in this sort of tension right now in in between, you know, what's going on, what God has done for us and what we have done to ourselves. So what needs to be taken care of? We have to be reconciled back to God. And how is that done? According to the recapitulation view of the atonement, Christ had to live a perfect life and live perfectly for us. Okay. Adam was a human being before sin entered the world. It's possible for Jesus to be a human being completely like us without sin entering the world, the importance of the virgin birth. When and and at some point we may do a theology pit where we talk about the Marian uh, dogmas, talk about how Mary was preserved from original sin, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, where you know, her mother didn't have, a, it wasn't a virgin birth, but she was immaculately conceived in that she was preserved from sin so that a pure vessel could then be there for Christ to come through for the virgin birth because he's getting his humanity from her. And so if he's getting his humanity from her, as the councils have said, then he can't get that, that inherited sin. Now, can you have a corrupt nature and not give into it? Well, that becomes a, that becomes a question. I think, yes, I think that he was like us in all ways and he wasn't tempted. I don't think that he was sinful. I think that he lived in a fallen world. He had fallen people all around him. There was sickness. There was death. Um, that brings up a, a lot of issues, a lot of hypothetical issues. But these are the issues that they're starting to think about because... Are you truly dead from sin where you can't do anything or are you just sick? Did sin mar us so bad that we can't do anything at all? Or are we just sick and we need to be rehabilitated? We need medicine. We need help. We need the sacraments. We need God to pour his grace in us that cleanses us and changes us. Now, medicine can help a sick man. Medicine can't help a dead man. Why would God give us the ability of his grace being poured into us to change us, to make us more holy? Whether you believe that has something to do with justification or has something to do with justification and sanctification or just sanctification, that this pouring in, this cleansing... Whether it comes through a physical element, 
or whether it's not, uh, you know, I mean, you can say it's through the sacraments and we get this physical grace that's, that's coming in and that's what's changing us and what's, what's saving us and helping us. Or if you want to go a purely Gnostic version, I don't mean to sound that for that to sound pejorative in any way. I mean to just say that everything physical is evil and therefore physical things can't, you know, bestow any type of grace on us. Um, you know, but that God's grace is uh, poured into us in a very spiritual way, and not uh, the the there are no physical elements that um, that assist in that. And that happens. But if we're completely dead and we need to be made alive again, what do we do from that? We have this original sin. And as Christians, when we talk about original sin and we talk about confessing our sins, even the most hardline Christian that doesn't believe that the waters of baptism wash away original sin, and I'm not advocating that it does, I'm just saying that those who say baptism is just an outward expression of an inward faith and that there is no transferable sanative grace that goes along with it, at what point do they then make the leap to say, this is how I've dealt with original sin? Because baptizing, infant baptism... um, or, or baptism that's a, a sanative type of baptism is dealing with this idea of original sin. But those who say that it's unnecessary, I would like to ask, when did you confess the sin of Adam? When did you ask for forgiveness to remove the original sin that we got from Adam? Have you ever confessed that? If you've never confessed that, why? You see, At this period in church history, this is what they're dealing with. How do we remove this original sin that we have? We got this original sin from Adam. Okay, we understand that now. We reject Pelagius' view. We reject the view that original sin does not affect us at all. But it needs to be removed. How is it removed? And they would say, it's through the waters of baptism. It's through the sacraments in the church. It's through God's grace that's administered. In this way, because what else is there at this time period? What else is there? The church has been given these sacraments for a reason. The church has been given this idea going back to, you know, we we could say in, in these elements to Tertullian that, you know, the sacraments transferred grace. And as we'll see a little later on, you know, Erasmus uh, speaking in this way, I believe. I believe it's Erasmus. hope I'm not getting the wrong name. But that grace needs to come into us and, and change us. Um, Augustine is saying that. Paul is saying that. That something has to be done about sin. There has to be some type of physical thing that is done. And when we look at the sacramental system and we look at the sacrificial system that needs to take place... Um, and we talk about the, the mass, the Catholic mass and how it's an unbloody sacrifice that, you know, it's, it's being revisited on the altar there. And we go back into the old Testament and we talk about how they looked at the remission of sins, the covering of sins, the removal of sins, uh, the concept of the federal headship, the, the line of Melchizedek, 
we get into all this stuff, we first need to have this grasp of we are sinners because we have a sinful nature. We don't, we don't say that we are sinners because we have sinned. We say that the reason why we commit sins is because of Adam, because we're sinners by nature. These need to be taken care of. My child, who's a sinner from birth, needs a sacrifice. It's always been this way. There has always been a sacrifice that's been needed. God came and perfected it. Everything was fulfilled in Christ, was perfected in Christ. He was what they were looking towards in the Old Testament. The, the imagery, the idea, the types and shadows, the things that they were doing were pointing towards a perfect sacrifice. And that's what Christ was. Christ did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to throw out the Ten Commandments, the laws of God, what what the Israelites were doing. He didn't come to destroy that. He came to fulfill it, to perfect it, to make it better, to show it's been taken care of. And now there's an even better thing that's coming, that you're not rejecting those things, but that you are embracing those things because they have been fulfilled in Christ and he represents us. He has done it perfectly. The law of God has been upheld and Christ has, is the one who's upheld it and he is the one that has surpassed it. He is the high priest. He is the king. He is the one who is, has done all these things. He is the one that took the punishment for us. And when we get to the idea of the meritous works of Christ... And that he's stored up these limitless uh, merits that is then distributed. That is God's grace. It's distributed through the church because where else is it going to be distributed through? You know, it's, it, it's not going to be distributed, you know, at, at, at a pagan temple. It's not going to be distributed. I mean, we have to receive this somehow. And so when we look at this, adding into this recapitulation view, not only did he have to do everything perfectly for us, but he also had to take on the punishment that was due for us also, the wrath of God, the propitiation. We now have a new analogy to look at, but then we have to formulate out of that analogy what's happening. And the analogy is is this, I can tell you in this story. That there was a king who completely obeyed the law and everything in it. He would never violate it. He was a just king. He was very just. And there was a penalty for theft in his kingdom. And it was seen that somebody had stolen something from the king, you know, from from what he had, from his, um, well, let's just say from his treasures, okay? It was a minor amount. And he said, you know, somebody, whoever did this, they need to return it because if you are caught, you're going to receive, you know, one lash for doing this. You know, it was a minor offense. He's going to go easy on them. Nobody turned it in and something else got stolen. And he just became enraged and said, that's it. 
cutting everything off. Whoever has done this, we're going to find you. And when we do, you're going to get 10 lashes. And this gets more serious. And he says, if somebody doesn't come forth within the next day, it's going to double. And we're going to investigate this. Nobody comes forth and it doubles. It's now 20 lashes. Within Hebrew society, they were given 40 lashes minus one because they felt that 39 lashes was the full amount that somebody could take without dying. And so if you whip them for a 40th time and they died, then it would be your fault that they died. But if you only whip them 39 times and then they died, then it wouldn't be your fault. So 39 was the highest. More days passed. The king eventually pronounced, whoever we find, they're going to get 40 lashes. And the blood will be on their own hands. It won't be on ours because of of what you've done, because of what has taken place. And then it turns out that they found who the thief was. And it was the king's own mother. And the king was distraught now. Because he was known for upholding the law. One of the commandments of the law is to honor your mother. Honor your mother and father. So what's he going to do? All the people are wondering now. The sentencing time is coming. The old woman who's old and frail and small is being chained to the whipping post. And she is going to be beaten with 40 lashes that nobody can withstand. The only person who could withstand that's the king because he's the, the biggest and the strongest. It's why he's the king at the time. He's the only one that can withstand this. And yet, if he pardons his own mother, he honors God's law. But at the same time, he violates God's law. But if he allows her to be beaten he violates God's law in that he's not honoring his mother, but yet he violates God's law by not upholding what needs to be done. People are watching this play out and they're like, well, what's going to happen? And it, it has to be done. She has to be beaten. This has to be taken place. The command is given. The person who has the whip pulls their arm back and is about to come down and the king screams, stop. He can't let it happen. And the whole crowd is just like, whew, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's not going to whip his own mother to death. And the king comes down to his mother, removes his own shirt and wraps his body around his mother and then tells them to commence with the sentence that his mother has to stay there and has to endure the beating with her son wrapped around her, taking every single stripe. God's law is fully upheld. The sentence was, was then given. She understands the gravity of it. Every single hit she feels through him but the sting of death is gone. This is the idea that they're getting now when it comes to original sin and the application of the atonement. 
So next week in the theology pit, we're going to discuss that preposition for and what it means that Christ died for us and the punishment that he took, the, the necessity of the cross and our look at the satisfaction view of the atonement, the, substita- the substitution, substitutionary vicarious the vicarious substitutionary view and the governmental view and what it, and what it all means. And I'm probably going to do a flyover of those. And then the week after really start zooming in on the sacraments and the sacramental system and and the why after that, I think that next week, a lot of our time is going to be spent understanding these different views um, I, I think a lot of time is going to be spent understanding what we mean by the free grace view, what we mean by the um, uh, the free will view, uh, all these different atonement understandings from the Reformed tradition and the Armenian tradition. And I think that's going to be a good flyover before we get into zooming in on what's called the Ordo Salutis, okay, the, the order of salvation, what has to occur in what way, in what order things are occurring in. And then I think it's important to understand the gravity of what is meant by eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ, why that is so important and why that is a hill to fight and die on for a lot of Christians. I hope this theology pit wasn't too much of a downer. I hope I wasn't, you know, in my voice. I, I felt, geez, looking back at this last hour, I feel like I've just been very ominous and kind of down about it and everything. And in a way, it's kind of depressing. It, it really is. And in this understanding, there's nothing that we can do. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's rough on us, you know, and I, I want to be more joyful. So I think that whenever I get into... Um, uh, talking about the atonement and talking about like election and calling and regeneration and conversion and justification, sanctification, glorification. I think I'm going to be naturally a lot more happy and a lot more upbeat about that. But this one, I just seem to be kind of down. Hopefully this is just a transition one. You listen to it once. You're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. Okay. We're all sinners. Great. How do we deal with that? But I want to say, I, I thought it was important that at this time period, this is what they're going through. And this is, I think what's going to spur on later on a better articulation, taking elements from the recapitulation view, from the ransom, the Satan view, and from the sacraments that they've been uh, participating in since the inception of the church and the, the water baptism, um, the uh, confirmation, all of this stuff, and then trying to synthesize it in, in what we have. So we'll probably be moving up to the 15th century uh, after this, 14th century, 15th century, those are the, there are some minor things that are going on. Well, I don't want to say minor, minor for our discussion of things that were going on about um, the Bible and, and scripture at this time. But I'm going to kind of gloss over that and just kind of focus in on all of the different views, all of the different um, uh, articulations that we presently hold to today and the different denominations. I mean, even talk about the different denominations that hold to the different ones. And then we will get, go backwards and go in deeper into all of those theories and what the implications of them are and the, the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. Sorry if I was prattling on and, and, you know, running tired here, yawning in the beginning of it. Um, 
But uh, please um, like me on uh, Facebook, uh, The Theology Pit. Um, you know, follow us on our RSS feed at samsonstick.com. That's S-A-M-S-O-N-S-T-I-C-K.com. And you'll find us in iTunes and subscribe. And now I think it's a good time to close down the pit. Thank you. <laughs>